Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to a very special episode of the Harrison Podcast. A short time back, I had someone reach out to me via Facebook with good things to say about the podcast. To my surprise, it was a name with which I was well familiar. Ron Schaefer wrote a book that came out last year entitled The Carnival Campaign, How a Rollicking 1840 Campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II Changed Presidential Elections Forever. A copy of this book resides on my Harrison bookshelf and is a source that I've turned to often since I received it. Given the opportunity, I invited Ron on the podcast to talk about his book and to share his insights on the period of American history around Harrison's presidency, as well as the process of studying and writing about history. Ron Schaefer was a reporter and editor at the Wall Street Journal for 38 years in Chicago, Detroit, and Washington, where he became the political features editor and wrote a page one column entitled The Washington Wire. He was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in 1990. He is the author of several books, including The Carnival Campaign, as well as When the Dodgers Were Bridegrooms, about the start of the Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team. He's now a freelance writer in Williamsburg, Virginia, just down the road from the homes of both William Henry Harrison and John Tyler. It was an honor to be able to talk to Ron and to have him participate in the Harrison Podcast's first interview. Hopefully now that I somewhat know what I'm doing, this won't be the last. If you have any ideas on who might be a good person to interview, or if you're a historian who would like to come on the Harrison Podcast to share your expertise, please feel free to reach out to me at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word, or on Twitter at Harrison Podcast. You know how it works by now. One slight correction I'd like to make. During the interview, I mentioned that Horace Greeley ran for president in the 1868 campaign. However, I was one election cycle too early with that one. He, in fact, ran in the 1872 campaign against Grant, who was seeking re-election after his initial election in 68. As Ron noted, it didn't go so well for Greeley. With all that said, and without further ado, let's get to the interview. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. To get us started, would you mind sharing where your interest in researching and writing about the 1840 presidential election came from? Sure. Uh, I first got interested in the 1840 campaign when I was the political features editor in Washington for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, people uh, in the political business always said that the first modern presidential campaign was the 1840 campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II, uh, but then they could never tell me much more about it, and in fact, most of them didn't even know who Tippecanoe and Tyler II were. So I decided to look up, look into it on my own uh, and found out there was a lot of material there. And has American history always been a topic of interest for you? Well, I've always liked history. Uh, I like, always was interested in how something happened for the first time, whether it's in uh, politics or Rock and roll music. Uh, my uh, last book was on the uh, the start of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the first pennants they won in 1889 and 1890. So uh, it's always been kind of the first thing, and there are a lot of firsts in this campaign. Who would you say was the most interesting or surprising individual that you learned about while working on the Carnival campaign? Well, I guess uh, being an old newspaper man, uh, I was uh, I liked Horace Greeley. Uh, who turned up as the uh, publisher of the uh, campaign newspaper, The Log Cabin, which was very prominent in the uh, Harrison campaign. Uh, He had already started a newspaper called The New Yorker, which was not the same as the current magazine. 
and he uh, later uh, started the New York Tribune, and also ran for president. So he was he was kind of an interesting guy. He's always been one that's fascinated me as well, especially with his career going on even past the Civil War. And like you said, he ran in the um, 1868 campaign. Right. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he picked up on some of the uh, themes from the from the log cabin and hard cider campaign when he ran for, for president, but uh, he didn't win. So who is a figure in the 1840 election that you think people should know more about? Well, I think they should know about, more about Harrison. Uh, Harrison, uh, the only only thing people know, and I, I'm sure this is not a spoiler alert here, that uh, he was the first president to die in office, but uh, he had a long career before that, and in fact, the uh, running for president was just uh, the, the end part of his life, uh, literally, as it turned out. But he had been uh, a... Uh, a general, a war hero, and uh, a uh, congressman. Uh, so he had a very uh, long and interesting life. Absolutely. I think that's one thing that I've heard back from listeners that they're most surprised about is how how many offices he held, what all he did. You know, Most people don't know that he was the minister to Columbia for a bit, that he served in the House and the Senate. Um, they just think of the tagline, typically, Tip Canoe and Tyler too, and they think of him as a military person. But he had a long civilian career as well. Uh, he did. He had. He did many things, and, and he had an interesting beginning. Of course, uh, growing up uh, during the American Revolution in Virginia, and uh, his father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So uh, after the Revolution was won, Harrison would. Uh, would have dinner with dinner guests like, you know, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and George Washington. So uh, I'm sure he heard a lot of interesting things over the dinner table. Absolutely. I can only imagine. And I know being in Williamsburg, you've probably gone to Berkeley Plantation. I have been to Berkeley Plantation. That uh, was one of the reasons I actually decided to go ahead with the book was that I had moved from Washington to Williamsburg. And both uh, Harrison and John Tyler were born right down the road here in Charles City County. Uh, it's, it was the only time you had uh, two candidates uh, who were born on the same road a few miles apart, although Harrison had moved to Ohio, of course. Uh, but uh, both uh, the Harrison's family and the Tyler family, were they knew each other. Uh, Tyler was uh, 17 years younger, so they were not boyhood friends. Uh, but they certainly knew each other, and and uh, to this day we have Berkeley Plantation here, and also the uh, home where Tyler was born and the home where Tyler retired to. Well, and it's interesting if I'm remembering correctly. I believe that uh, Benjamin Harrison, Harrison's father, was actually succeeded as governor of Virginia by John Tyler's father. That's correct. The, the Harrison's and the Tyler is succeeding the Harrisons began a long time ago. <laughs> and they actually ran against each other uh, at, at some point, and uh, uh, some, sometimes one would win and sometimes the other would win. These trends just keep on going. <laughs> well, in your research, what clues, if any, did you come across as to what a full Harrison term might have looked like? Or on the reverse end, what did you find to indicate what a second Van Buren term might have entailed? Well, the Harrison term, I think, probably would have been much different. The uh, 
the Whigs also won uh, Congress during that 1840 election, and they had a specific plan that basically Henry Clay was in charge of as the uh, Senate leader. And Harrison, when he accepted the nomination, he pretty much said, uh, well, two things. One, he was he would serve only one term. Uh, he was uh, 67 years old at that time, the oldest man ever to run for president. And he also expressed a feeling that uh, he should pretty much do uh, what uh, Congress asked him to do because Congress represented the people. And even with his cabinet, uh, his policy was uh, in making a decision, he would take a vote of the cabinet and go with the majority. So I think if he had won, uh, the Whigs probably would have gotten the new uh, National Bank passed. Uh, just as uh, they had expected to before Harrison uh, died suddenly. And then as far as if Van Buren had won, uh, it probably would have been pretty much what happened because uh, Tyler uh, really was not a Whig. He had just switched from the Democratic Party not long before because like a lot of the people who formed the Whig Party, they were opposing um, Andrew Jackson. But he really didn't believe in the Whig uh, policies, and so, of course, he vetoed all of the Whig bills to the point that they finally uh, kicked him out of the party. Well, and and that's just, it's always fascinating to read um, about the early days of the Tyler presidency, and you've got the Whigs who, it seemed like they thought that, oh, well, he's one of us, and then all of a sudden, no, no, he's really not. But if you look back at Tyler's history, it's like, why why did they ever think that he was a Henry Clay type of wig? Well, it was, uh, they really didn't think about it, I don't think. I think two things happened. Uh, one, when uh, Harrison was nominated, and of course Harrison was not at the convention in Harrisburg. Uh, Tyler was at the convention. Uh, Clay had expected to be nominated for president. And the Clay people were very upset when Harrison won. So the Whigs looked around for a Clay supporter to make uh, the vice presidential candidate. And allegedly, Clay, I mean, Her- uh, Tyler had had cried when uh, when Clay didn't get the nomination. He, he denied that later, but that was the view then. So they figured, well, here was a man who could win over the Clay supporters if we make him the running mate. Uh, so, and that did did help them in the campaign because they uh, uh, here was a, the running mate who was a supporter of Henry Clay, but as it turned out, when he got in office, he turned against his old hero Clay because uh, again, he was not really a believer in the Whig policies. And that's a great lead in to, into our next question. Um, so it's pretty much accepted without question, that had Henry Clay been the Whig nominee in 1840, that he would have become president. Do you agree or disagree with that? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, what you've got to remember is that back uh, in, during that election, the the economy was in the worst depression in history up to that point, and probably uh, the worst depression except for the one of 1929. So just about anybody <laughs> that the Whigs put up uh, probably would have won, and nobody knew that better than Clay, uh, who was very uh, bitter about uh, not getting the nomination and, in fact, was at first reluctant to campaign for Harrison. But he finally did because he knew Harrison had planned to serve only one term so that he would have a good chance of winning the next time. 
But I think just about anybody they would have put up that year had a really good chance of winning. And so you think that the economic downturns, the panics, uh, were the main uh, impact on the 1840 election and its result? I think that was probably the main. The panic of 1837 just threw so many people out of work. And even if you worked, your wages went way down. Uh, and there also was this backlash against uh, uh, Van Buren uh, and uh, in Washington. He was, at that time, he was a Democrat. And the Democrats were more like Republicans today, and they believed in very small government. Uh, so Van Buren did not believe in using the government to help the people who were out of work. They basically should be on their own and uh, not look uh, uh, for the government uh, for help and then he says things like uh, you know if uh, if people worked as hard as I did there would be no panic and this of course did not help him with people who couldn't find jobs no matter what they were doing so it was a combination but there's kind of this two sides of the same coin the economy was so bad and the government uh, refused to to help uh, plus there were both Jackson and Van Buren had appointed thousands of officers office holders, mostly their friends, who became very corrupt. So you had this backlash against Washington, which, of course, has continued in many campaigns since. We've definitely seen that in recent campaigns. So. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, and especially like thinking of, of the Panic of 1837, um, some of the works that I've read, uh, specifically I'm thinking of uh, Jessica Lepler, and her most recent works uh, examining that panic. And it's something that I don't see too often, but this idea of the panic not just being, you know, on an economic sense, but also uh, an emotional sense. You know, all these people out of work, and um, we just don't really see as much, but I think that, that more recent scholarship is starting to bring to light that, no, this was along the lines of the Great Depression, uh, the Great Recession in terms of more modern history. Um, and so you start to see why there was this huge shift, not just in the presidential election, but also in Congress and state houses, governorships, to turn towards the Whigs. Right, and the Whigs capitalized on this. Um, I have you know one chapter in my book after the convention of the... The Whigs said their plan was to uh, to to promote Harrison as a war hero, just like Andrew Jackson. That was pretty much the model for their campaign. And then this opposition newspaper comes out, and as I said, uh, Harrison was 67 years old, so they called him this, you know, senile granny who would be content uh, to just take a pension and uh, stay in his log cabin and drink hard cider. Uh, so these. Two strategists, one a uh, rich banker and the other a young newspaper reporter in Harrisburg, decide to, maybe that's the way to go. And the idea was to uh, to take advantage of the anger and the passion, and uh, instead of focusing on policy, uh, just to stir up the voters uh, with these big rallies, which were a big change from the previous uh, tactics of uh, small community meetings and use this anger and passion uh, to promote uh, enthusiasm for Harrison and opposition to Van Buren, and that's uh, what they ended up doing. Absolutely. 
And so this kind of gets to, um, because first of all, I love that, that story, you know, that you've, you've got these people plotting out an attack on Harrison and, oh, well, you know, he's, he's willing to sit in his log cabin and drink hard cider. And then the Whig campaign just kind of turns around and says, you know what, we'll use that. We'll take it. So you talked in your book about how the 1840 campaign resembled modern campaigns, but what would you say is a key way in which it differed from modern campaigns besides, you know, of course, advancements in communication and transportation? Well, let me see. Probably uh, differed in the sense that uh, you didn't didn't have, I don't know if this falls into communication, but you didn't have uh, advertising, for or against the candidates, uh, this was mostly done in those days. The, the newspapers were so biased, so that the papers were either for the Whigs or they were for the uh, Democrats. So all of the insults, uh, which were plenty, but n- not new to this campaign, of course, it's been around forever. But that was done by the newspapers, and the newspapers were like basically uh, uh, campaign arms of each. Uh, each party, and then of course the Whigs started their own newspaper, as I mentioned, with the uh, with the Log Cabin newspaper of Horace Greeley, which mainly uh, promoted Harrison. All the, the themes about Harrison, uh, about the Log Cabin, about being a poor man living a log cabin, uh, being one of the common men, even though he you know grew up in a, a plantation in Virginia. So the uh, what. What the difference that we see now are, are all kinds of attack ads uh, on television, uh, and back then it was pretty much done by the uh, the partisan newspapers on East Side, and that's where in those days uh, people got most of their news. Absolutely, and and that's one thing that we really don't think of nowadays. You know, we we up until I would say recently we've had this ideal of news being you know non-biased they just present the facts but it wasn't always that way and it you know pretty far in american history we've still got these you know it's like the yellow journalism around the turn of the century right and like in this case this this young reporter with the harrisburg paper he was actually part of the Whig campaign and this was true for the editors of most of the papers that they actually help plan and and help uh, promote the, the, a campaign, which uh, even even in today, where you know you may think a paper may lean one way or other, that would just totally be uh, unheard of. You couldn't imagine an editor also being part of the campaign uh, of a presidential candidate. And turning to that, you know, thinking of the the campaign in 1840. How much control or influence did the candidates themselves have in terms of the national campaign? And the, did was there any difference in terms of parties, the Whigs versus the Democrats? In, in those days, the, the candidates really didn't have that much control. Uh, for example, Harrison had no idea that they had planned uh, this uh, log cabin and hard cider theme. Uh, and so he had no role in deciding on this. But once once he saw that it was working, uh, he certainly went along with it. Uh, he didn't go out and say, "Well, you know, that's not quite right." He he pretty much uh, uh, indicated that uh, well, maybe he did uh, live in a log cabin because a long time ago it actually was kind of a log cabin. Uh, Van Buren probably was a little more involved in his campaign behind the scenes. Uh, 
in the original campaigns, the candidates, and of course, they never campaigned. That was considered to be unseemly and arrogant to campaign for yourself. But they were usually pulling the strings behind the scenes. And the uh, the Democrats and Van Buren uh, had really their own newspaper. It was called The Globe, The Washington Globe, uh, which had been started by President Jackson's people. And uh, even though it was uh, it was posed as a regular newspaper, it was pretty much uh, the paper of the of the White House. So anything uh, Van Buren wanted done uh, or printed, he certainly could have it done in the Globe. So I think he probably had a little more involvement. Uh, but again, he he certainly did not like go out and campaign uh, uh, as as modern presidential candidates do. And so if it had been Clay who ended up at the top of the Whig ticket in 1840, do you think that we might have had some of the developments that made the 1840 campaign more like a modern campaign? Or um, do you think it would have been more of those traditional kind of the candidate stays at home, uh, doesn't actually campaign for himself? Yeah, I definitely. If Clay had run, there would not have been much change. Uh, Clay actually hated this, these idea of these big uh, parades and rallies and, and candidates campaigning for themselves. He, he considered it to be, uh, improper. He was an old time politician and, uh, most old time politicians, uh, uh, felt, uh, that, uh, it just was totally unseemly to get out there and campaign for yourself. But he reluctantly did it for Harrison, uh, and he did a good job of it because he was a fantastic speaker. And uh, But even when he ran for president in uh, 1844, he did not get out and, and campaign for himself, uh, although they used some of the uh, ideas from the 1840 campaign. Uh, there were, for example, there were some uh, uh, clay snuff boxes that you could buy and souvenirs like that, and they had parades and things like that. But, but basically, I don't think anything would have changed if uh, Henry Clay had been nominated in 1840. Well, and that's an excellent point, bringing up uh, Clay's candidacy in 1844 and kind of going back to this this older style, still having some of the elements from the 1840 campaign, because that was one of the things that really struck me about your book, is that you talk towards the end about, you know, after 1840, how some of these innovations kind of go away for a little bit, but then gradually... Um, they end up coming back as a part of what we think of as traditional, you know, more modern presidential campaigns. Right. For, it took a while for this to sink in. Of course, Harrison became the first presidential candidate to campaign for himself. Uh, and he did that only in Ohio, partly because of transportation. He mainly went by stagecoach so that and train, which limited his ability to travel. Uh, but it still was, especially by the old timers, this was just considered that you couldn't imagine going out and, and talking about yourself. Uh, I think um, uh, when Winfield Scott ran for the Whigs, he, again, he didn't want to look like he was campaigning, so he made this kind of trip like he was going to to the hospital, but he had to cross about nine or ten states to get there, <laughs> and he gave up some talks in the way. But, you know, he wasn't campaigning, you know. And uh, even Lincoln, who uh, gave a lot of speeches for Harrison, uh, he did not uh, give speeches for himself, although his um, uh, his opponent did. He, he spoke in every state, and, uh, uh, and he did it by train. And then when um, 
Greeley ran for president, he also went on uh, uh, train trips and speaking off the back of the car. But uh, it wasn't like a planned trip. He would just have to go out there while they changed water. And sometimes you only have about two minutes and the train would be pulling off. But uh, I think eventually it was uh, uh, Jennings Bryan, uh, who uh, who ran for president in, what, 1896 maybe? And he did a big train uh, tour across America. So that it eventually caught on. And, of course, now we can't um, imagine uh, having a uh, presidential campaign without speeches, though sometimes we'd like to. I know that is one thing that you look back on these older campaigns and and you know the lack of drama to them, and you almost wish that maybe we could have a little more of that. Well, so we've already mentioned Andrew Jackson. Um, so this kind of gets to this question about um, what impact did you find in your research on the two uh, living past presidents? So that was John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson were still around um, on the election of 1840. I didn't see any big uh, impact from either, either candidate, uh, either former president. Uh, Jackson, as I mentioned, of course, he also was appalled at the idea of a presidential candidate campaigning for himself, and so he never did it. But he did campaign in Tennessee for uh, Van Buren, apparently even kissing babies. Uh, but uh, as it turned out, uh, uh, Van Buren lost the state of Tennessee, so apparently uh, Jackson uh, didn't help that much. And John Quincy Adams, uh, he did not campaign. Uh, most of what we learn about what he thought uh, is from his diary, and I don't know if he mentioned in public, and one thing he did put out was that the, that maybe uh, Martin Van Buren, who grew up in upstate New York, was the uh, the bastard son of Aaron Burr, who traveled through uh, and ate at a tavern that Van Buren's parents owned. Whether that got out, I don't know, but he could be, he would make a good uh, advertising writer for negative ads if he wrote uh, advertising John Quincy Adams. I love it. <laughs> yeah, if if he would have been willing to actually have that out there, he would definitely have fit in with this election cycle as as we've seen it the last few cycles. Definitely negative ads. <laughs> so, um, turning to kind of a uh, a foreign policy angle to this, um, did you find anything to indicate that the tensions between the U.S. and the British are, to be pr more precise, the Canadians had an impact on the 1840 election? I would uh, say probably more the British than the Canadians. There was an issue, uh, there was a border issue between Canada, and that was always a problem, and this was up in upper state New York, and this is what helped the uh, candidacy of Win General Winfield Scott uh, at the 1839 convention for the 1840 nomination, because he had helped settle that. So at the convention, he and Harrison were the two generals they were considering to run, uh, as well as Henry Clay. So there was some tension uh, at, at that point, uh, but the main involvement, uh, at least as far as the Democrats contended, was that the British, uh, this, and this may sound reminiscent of the last election, uh, that the British were trying to help Harrison win. Uh, they, of course, didn't have anything to hack into, uh, like the Russians, uh, but they had a lot of money power. And the the Democrats charged that with the help of Daniel Webster, uh, that the Whigs were helping to fund some of Harrison's campaign 
so that they could recover some of their lost investment in the U.S. And they wanted the National Bank revived because they had invested in the bank and they wanted to get their their money back. So the the idea of British uh, involvement uh, was amazing. One of the few actually issues uh, in this campaign, and uh, uh, I really can't tell to what extent that that was true. That the Whigs denied it, but clearly the the uh, England was on the side of Harrison in the 1840 campaign. Well, and it's fascinating that you bring up that. You know, here yet again, we have this this idea of you know foreign involvement in in our campaigns, and um, thinking about really more of Jackson, but the charge by the Democrats that you know the National Bank was trying to influence government and involved in elections, and and yet again, you know, we see in in our modern times this idea that you know big money is having an influence on our political affairs and our governmental affairs. It's fascinating, you know, to me, that's one of the things I love about history is seeing the correlations and seeing that, you know, some things that we think of as very modern are, in fact, you know, they've been brought down through the ages uh, for better or worse. You know, there, there are bright points to that as well as, negatives. Right, and and that is one of the interesting things about history. Uh, I remember even when I was a, a features editor at the Wall Street Journal, I always would have to watch for, and copy from my reporters about, well, this is the first time this happened, and uh, because usually it wasn't. <laughs> it may have been the first <laughs> time in their lifetime, but uh, just about anything has happened sometime in the past, and uh, uh, and of course, in this 1840 election and big money, this was really one of the first times that big money got involved, and uh, a lot of New York industrialists uh, put money into into the campaign on the side of uh, Harrison. And one of them uh, not only gave money, he went out in the campaign uh, uh, and sang some of the campaign songs and led the crowds in singing these songs about Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And this is such a, it really is a fascinating campaign. Um, I think in your book, you really get at some issues that not many people think of in terms of this campaign. You know, there's so much focus on, on the songs and the slogans, but I think you really got to more of the heart of, you know, A, what was going on with Harrison and, and why he was an attractive candidate, but then also, you know, other things, other things events and and other social issues that were under the surface and and being brought up and being brought to the surface and being brought into the the political sphere yeah i i found a lot of fascinating things going on and and i'm sure you know the problem is that the first uh, tendency of people to when you put out a book or or podcast about the, the 1840s People think they don't want want to know of anything about what happened back then, but if they you can just get them into it, they uh, they like it a lot. I had an old friend who said he would never read a book on presidential election of 1840, uh, but since he knew me, he read it and he said, "Yeah, I really like that." So it's it's an idea. It's just got to persuade people that uh, there were some interesting things happened back in the old days. Absolutely. So. 
Thinking about that, what do you think is key to engaging a modern audience about subjects of history? Well, I think probably you've got to, the way we are today, find a way to entertain them. I mean, the ultimate example, of course, is Hamilton, uh, which I was fortunate enough to see, and it's totally fabulous, as they say. And I can foresee the day, uh, once it makes all its money, uh, that this will be done by high schools, and it is loaded with factual information. Uh, if I ran a history class, what I would do first is uh, give him a copy of Dave Barry's book about history, His uh, Dave Barry the Humorist. He wrote some really funny books. Uh, and then go uh, into the issues in a serious manner once you got their attention. But uh, somehow you've got to get their attention, and sometimes uh, what you got to do is make it uh, entertaining. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it uh, it shouldn't take that, but that's pretty much what happens these days. Absolutely. I was actually just um, in between one of my meetings uh, today, I was uh, looking through the news and they were talking about in Norway, apparently there is an entire um, TV series that is just, it's things that happen very slowly, you know, like they, they'll broadcast an entire um fireplace you know you'll have the fire burning in the fireplace and it'll be like 12 hours of just that and i think that's one thing that we've we've lost in our modern age we're so on the go just to have that experience to to stop and really engage with something it's it's difficult to get people to do that yeah that's exactly right and uh, every once in a while you can break through and uh, I think if somehow uh, you can just get people's attention, you know, some of these TV documentaries that run, once people look at them, they say, you know, that's that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that happened before, or I thought that was something recent. It's, once you can get them, I think that there's a plenty of uh, a fascinating uh, history uh, out there that uh, people are ready for. And so what advice would you give, Ron, uh, to listeners who wanted to kickstart their own studies into history? Well, I, you know, you just you just got to read and read. And today, there's uh, uh, also, of course, podcasts like yours uh, that uh, are loaded with uh, historical uh, facts and stories and so forth. Probably best to pick out an area that you're interested in and uh, uh, just dig into that and uh, and move on from there. And since you mentioned podcasts, um, do you listen to podcasts often? And if so, what are some of your favorites? I listen from time to time. I listen to The Moth. Uh, there's there's a History One Stuff You Should Know, I think it's called. And uh, actually, uh, for my book, I was interviewed by the Associated Press uh, uh, book podcast that they have. Uh, so they're... they're amazing how many different ones are out there and, and the subjects you can find out about. And constantly more coming out every day. Definitely, yeah. Which uh, historian or author would you say has most influenced you, um, either in writing the Carnival Campaign or just in general? Well, I guess when I look back, I, I usually kind of go to the David McCullough books. Uh, I just read his Wright Brothers books, um, which again, my interest was... Uh, somebody who did something the first time. How did they do that? How did this happen? And uh, then his Adams book, uh, his Brooklyn Bridge book. So I guess uh, 
I guess if there's one person I, I read more than others, it, it's him, but he's, he's not the only one. I've read the Jefferson books. And, uh, you know, whenever there's a, a new historical uh, book out, I, use, I usually kind of lean that way. Absolutely. If That's one thing I always have my list of books that I, I need to read. And it just keeps getting longer and longer. But <laughs> uh, turning to writing for a minute. Um, so I've heard over the years that some writers, uh, they end up actually getting lost in the research and have trouble making that transition to actual writing. At what point did you feel that you were ready to write? And what advice would you give to other writers who are transitioning to that stage of the process? Well, in terms of, of deciding uh, when I should write, it's pretty much the same as when I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Usually when I started finding the same examples over and over again, I figured I probably had gone about as far as I, I should, and maybe I should start getting this uh, down on, of course, on paper in the old days, but <laughs> down on the computer. But it can be overwhelming, especially when you're writing a book, because there's just there's just so much out there. And uh, one thing I would suggest that what we had uh, reporters at the Wall Street Journal do the reporters all wanted to write these long page one stories that there used to be three on the front page. There's only one now. But before they, they could start writing it, they had to write a proposal to the uh, page one editor and get it approved. So this meant they had to do some uh, initial reporting just to see if it looked like there was enough to make a story or in case for an author to just kind of write up a little a summary of what they found out to see if it really looks like there's enough here for a book. And what that does also is that usually when you make the proposal or the outline, it sort of lists the areas that you're going to focus on. And that becomes, once you start writing, like a little roadmap uh, for you to follow uh, in your reporting because you're looking to fill out information on specific subjects. Uh, but also ready to take a U-turn if you have to or go off in another direction. Uh, my biggest surprise in writing this book was to find out this was the first time that women got involved in elections. And I didn't know that going in, but that was one of the nice surprises. Uh, once you start digging into a subject, you find something you never, never expected to. And that's an excellent segue into the next question. Um, what changed in your understanding of American history or this point in American history during the course of your research for the Carnival campaign? Well, I, again, going in, I didn't realize uh, that uh, presidential candidates didn't campaign that much. I, I heard that Harrison was the first, but I heard that, you know, he just gave a couple talks and, and uh, all he did was give some Indian war hoops and, uh, and just made an appearance, and I found out that, in fact, uh, it definitely was something that was frowned upon, and secondly, that he gave his speeches for like two hours long, and uh, he, while he didn't talk a lot about policies, uh, he did talk about his philosophy, and uh, he, he was, this was so unusual that he drew crowds of 100,000 people again, which I totally surprised me. The uh, nation's population was like 5% of what it is now. So this is incredible turnouts. And, of course, most people couldn't hear him because he had no microphone. 
but it was just the idea of, of seeing a presidential candidate in person campaigning was just so unusual that it drew all these uh, people out. So this, again, is while I, I knew some of this going in and like my proposal to myself, it was much more than I had expected. And that's, of course, what you love to find when you're researching a book. Absolutely. And I, I think that brings up an interesting point. You know, we, I think we've still got some of that nowadays. You know, we want to be a part of, of something big. And that is a fascinating thing with this with this election. You see these huge events, all of these people coming together, and it's just because they just want it to be a part of it. And I, I think that's something that still exists today in different ways, you know, whether it's through social media or watching something on TV or through streaming video or, or listening to a podcast. But I think we've still got that innate sense of wanting to be a part of something greater. Yeah, I think most people still have that. It's just uh, different ways of going about it. And, uh, you know, I guess my only concern is is a lot of them want to be part of some kind of celebrity thing uh, where where famous people uh, get more attention than somebody who has something more important to say. And I guess that brings in the entertainment uh, part of it. But... Uh, uh, you know, my 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 goal always has been to try to get people more interested and excited about the, the history that brought us here to this point, and that's really was one reason uh, that I did this book. And I think that was something that's kind of along the lines of what I found in terms of Harrison in my studies of him. It, you know, he was a celebrity; everybody knew him. But at the same time, that wasn't really the focus for him. For him, he seemed to have this idea. He always came back to this idea of legacy, of thinking of you know what he was going to leave for his family, you know how he was going to help them to move forward, how he was going to help the nation to move forward, how he could best serve his community. So in your own career to date, what would you say or what would you hope to be your legacy? Oh, wow. Well, that's... <laughs> Well, I'm, you know, in terms of my and my career, I've uh, always hoped uh, that I could help people be better informed, whether it was uh, about politics or whatever else I was writing about. And my interest now in some of the things I write, I write for the local newspaper here in Williamsburg sometimes, is to fill in some of these holes in history that people don't always know about, because I think they can see that uh, uh, there were there were forerunners to what we do today, and we can kind of look at what happened then to decide what we want to do now uh, about uh, the various uh, problems and issues that that we have. So I would guess any little bit I could do to promote an interest in history, that's what I'd be uh, interested in doing. And I think in terms of the Carnival campaign and the election of 1840, I think you've definitely accomplished that. Well, I appreciate that. And uh I'm, I'm hoping others will agree by buying the book. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. The book is out there. It is available at any major booksellers. And in terms of me, I, I highly recommend it. Thanks again to Ron for his time and for sharing his knowledge about the 1840 campaign and the various characters and subjects related with it. If you're interested in learning more about this rollicking campaign, be sure to pick up Ron's book, The Carnival Campaign, at Barnes & Noble or other booksellers. Also, special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. 
Besides working on the audio for this one, his advice on the technical setup and best practices for the phone interview were invaluable. If you, like me, could use Andrew's expertise for your next audio project, his email address is andrew at fonkuk, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. He's great to work with and may even share a fact or two about Henry Clay with you. Speaking of, next episode, we'll return to our series on the life of Henry Clay. If you've missed any of those episodes thus far, you can catch up by listening to them on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com, or on iTunes or Stitcher. As always, I thank you so much for listening. This podcast has been a pleasure, not just in being able to share information about a fascinating period in American history, but also in all the individuals that I've had a chance to interact with because of it. Ron now added to that number. It's been a great experience to share, so thank you to all, and please keep on listening and reaching out, and I look forward to more opportunities to learn together ahead. I also wanted to quickly mention that I'll be attending the SHARE conference, that's the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic, in Philadelphia in July this year. If you're in the area or attending the conference, please let me know. Take care, everyone, and thanks again.